Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're off! We're, we're, welcome to another fucking family fun-sized fuckstick fan club. Um, my name is Nick and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And uh, you're listening to... Fucking fan club. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Uh, I'm, really nervous about our, I'm really nervous about our guest that we've got coming oh, up. Oh, am I? It's quite exciting. He's quite a big deal. And I don't but, know what it's going to be like. Um, I just, yeah, it's for the first time I've ever... It might actually be a better interview than normal, because it's the first time... Yeah, I think so. I've actually, I've actually written down questions just to sort of, like, guide me through it. But, yeah. Um, all right, good. <laughs> As long as we're both... <laughs> yeah, we're both as long as we're both nervous, it would be fine. As long as we're both nervous, it would be, yeah, be alright. Uh, what's the first, what's the first fucking... Yeah, we're in this together. Well, um, sure, but if it goes badly, I'm throwing you under the bus now. <laughs> you can both leave the meeting, Nick. I would never do that. Imagine that. Imagine if I just if I just left the meeting. Oh God. Oh yeah. So uh, this is uh, week uh, eight or nine of of cat God, COVID. Nine. It's been um, yeah. week eight apparently. Week eight of lockdown is it? Yeah, week eight of lockdown. So week ten for me. I don't want to be like uh, a boastful <laughs> Boris. Oh no, <laughs> like a negative Nelly. But uh, but Boris is actually the prime minister. Uh, so <laughs> probably the wrong wrong choice. A, bo- a boastful Benny. <laughs> but I've been uh, locked up two weeks longer than everyone else. You got ill uh, two weeks exactly two weeks before lockdown, right? And then yeah, I got. I got Rona two weeks before lockdown, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming. I'm assuming it was Rona. I'm waiting for one of those tests that's going around. My neighbour's got one, and so uh, they said they'd lend it me when they've done with it. So uh, that'll be good. Um, fucking hell. So this is uh, so live from... from uh, it's not live. It's pre-recorded on Wednesday. But doing it as live. Yeah, recorded live, obviously. Recorded live. Broadcast uh, two days later. Less than two days now. Less than two days. Um. (laughs) 44 (laughs) hours. We're about 44 hours behind you guys that are listening Uh, live. And who knows how long if you're listening on a podcast. uh, We we both might be dead. Uh, Or that might be. Um, <laughs> what is Nick, what is the first rule of fan club? First rule of fan club is wash your hands. <laughs> we should have that. Uh, second, first rule of fan club is tell your friends. Uh, get two meters away from your friend and tell them, "Hey, have you listened to fan club?" And when they say no, uh, just uh, lend them your uh, ear, ear, <laughs> your earphones. And, uh, you do that now. That's an issue to do. You can't hand them your earphones. Can he, does, it, does it go through ears? You're not allowed to share yeah. earphones. I wouldn't have thought so. Oh, fuck. <laughs> what have you done? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've probably got, got corona then. Okay. I've been sticking other people's headphones up my ass and then turning the volume up really loud. It, the, vibrations, right? the vibrations are amazing. <laughs> um... <laughs> What's, uh, 
I went to see, we might have talked about it, I went to see uh, Solomon Gray, uh, who was like an ex-fan clubber. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he came on the show like last year, maybe. And uh, we probably mentioned it in the thing. Their bass line is so low, that, um, and it's so loud. <laughs> Basically, you go and see them, and you can just hear their music. You just feel their music vibrating through your arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best gigs I've ever been to. Have to say. Was there a worry uh, that you might fit yourself or anything there? No, nah, absolutely not, mate. I've <laughs> got full control when it comes to that. Well done. And what's what's the second rule of fan club? <laughs> uh, first rule of fan club is tell your friends. Second rule of fan club is shit your pants. <laughs> You've got to be social, socially distant. So hopefully, as far away from someone else as possible. Certainly, in that regard, you don't want to be close yeah. to anyone. Ab- absolutely what i've learned is that you know uh, i love doing this show i really love doing the show i love seeing you every week uh i've always been a fan of you matt and uh it's good to be able to work with you and what i've learned is that this is a show that i really believe in and i really want to get like uh, good listening figures and every week I, I tweet you know oh we've done another show and it'll get like three likes uh, <laughs> from the same people every week. And then I'll do one joke about wanking and it'll get a thousand likes, right? And um, this is, you know, uh, wanking jokes just come to me, you know? <laughs> but this is sort of like, this takes a bit of work and a bit of prep, but now it's up and running. It's kind of like, it's fine. Uh, so when we say tell your friends, basically just retweet the fuck out of it for fuck's sake otherwise it's just pathetic so that's the second rule of fun <laughs> that's the new <laughs> that's the new slogan oh, i am in a good mood that's a nice mug did i get you that mug you did get me it thank you nick it's a david bowie mug you don't need to keep thanking me, but I'm getting old and I forget how generous I've been. <laughs> um, right, okay. Well, aren't we in a good mood? <laughs> That's going to change. Um, so, uh, so what do we normally do? What have you been I, a fan of this week, Nathaniel? Yeah, well, I watched this week. I saw, I'll tell you what I watched. I watched Reign of Fire, the uh, Christian Bale, Matthew McConaughey dragon movie. The disappointing dragon movie where the posters were better than the movie. No, I love it. I love it. Second time, watched <laughs> it when it came out. Loved it. Watched it again. Mm. Still love it. Big fan. Really? Big fan. The posters were good, though, they weren't they? Well, they were good. I like that it's like um, the dragons are found on the extension of the London Docklands, and I quite like yeah. that as a little plot. It's like quite. It's a nice little detail that it's got a proper existing thing. Yeah, I, do you know what I've, I've learned? I was thinking about this in the week. It's really weird. Um, uh, but the posters for Rain of Fire were all like pictures of Big Ben that were getting set ablaze by dragons flying yeah. through the air. And it was one of those weird things where there's a prologue at the beginning where they're in the Docklands and they discover a dragon. And then it cuts forward. It, it, it jumps through the exciting bit. And then it cuts forward 30 years or however long to the future where it's just like, uh, it's the last remnants of civilization because we've all been wiped out by dragons. And you go, no, 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 no. 
no, 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 skip back a bit. That's your movie. That's it. So it's like they said, we want to do this, like, it's a dragon, it's a dragony version. The posters made it look like it was a dragony version of Independence Day. Yeah, and, they could uh, just do, do some kind of prequel, midquel version of the film as well. It was sort of like, um, it's kind of, it was like, a, it's Mad Max meets uh, Dragon Slayer, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, and it's kind of like what they do. It's like they've reverted mankind back to medieval times. So it's sort of like a medieval uh, epic. But yeah. it's about them. There's a bit when they're sort of like retelling Star Wars and stuff like that, aren't they? As, uh, as like one of their myths. Yeah, yeah. Which was an optimistic look because now Star Wars is dead and no one's going to remember it in five years. But uh, uh, the dragons if, or not. If the dragons had come in 2005, it would probably be a lot more present in people's Accurate. minds. Yeah, accurate. Yeah, what I was thinking was um, uh, that Thor: The Dark World gets loads of uh, like negative press, right? Everyone hates Thor: The Dark World, and I would say out of all of the Marvel films, aside from Captain America, which was like on my phone, you know, when I bought it, it was sort of like a digital transfer, and I sort of like ended up with it on my phone. So I ended up watching Captain America like three times, maybe in little bits and pieces. But Thor The Dark World is the only Marvel movie that I've actually deliberately sat down and watched more than once, like okay. for fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I really like Thor The Dark World. And I think the reason is because there's a scene when he's on the underground. Yeah. And I just, and I just like seeing the underground on, on film. I know what you mean, though. I do. <laughs> you see, you should like Rain of Fire then, because that's literally about the Docklands. So it should be. Like... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I remember. Um, um, I've been to the Docklands. I went to the Docklands when they opened it. Oh god, they must have been working on that for ages then. Yeah, the Docklands. Oh yeah, no, no, it was open. It's been open since the nineties, isn't it? Docklands Light Railway. Oh no, I, maybe it was. They did an extension of the right. line then, and uh, and that's what I went to. I thought. I think I saw Boris Johnson do a speech. I think it was before he was prime minister, and he was just this wacky guy. And um, I went with David Trim. And this sounds like a humble brag now, but um, I was in the Evening Standard 100 names that you should know. Oh. Uh, that I, got, I got some sort of plaque or something like that. And they get loads of people from all these different uh, professions and disciplines, and they invite you all to... Um, uh, to, to learn, it was yeah, it was like on the DLR. I think there was like a, a new branch of the DLR. It okay. was just opening, and we got to sort of um, look around and see the process of it. It was actually really interesting. There was like a whole uh, museum kind of like layout thing. It's really interesting. You look around it, but what you realise is basically it's a brand awareness thing. It's not a it's not a prize. They, it's like all things, you know, it's like, the, it's like what the British Comedy Awards turned into. It's kind of like, it's a little bit an award ceremony, but basically it's um, so that Lidl are sponsoring it and it's basically free advertisement for them, but in the guise of a award ceremony. It's like the Foster's Awards. It's the Comedy Awards sponsored by Foster's, but everyone called them the Foster's Awards. It's quite a good thing to get attached to. Hmm? Um, but um, so I went to this evening standard thing. They invited, I think it was a thousand names, you know, and you got like athletes. Yeah, worth by the minute, it was a hundred before. Like I, th I think, yeah, but that's the thing. It's like they, it's like a thousand names or a hundred names that you must know, right? For the year, I guess it was two thousand and 
2015 or 2016, you know, Sarah Pascoe was on the list, you know, but it's like athletes and actors and uh, musicians and, you know, uh, politicians and all this other stuff. And basically what they do is they're casting their net wide because even in comedy, I've got a different fan base to Sarah Pascoe, you know. And so I go, hey, I got this evening standard award. She goes, hey, I got this evening standard award. And we're broadcasting it to all of our groups of people. But then if you're not into comedy, don't worry, we've got the athletes covered, we've got the politicians covered, we've got the scientists covered. You know, so it's like every single demographic is covered. And they say, hey, hey, come and celebrate yourself for an evening and you do then they take a photo of you on the way out with evening standard behind you broadcast it everywhere and it's brand awareness basically anyway this thing boris johnson went up and he did a joke about prostitutes it was like this absolutely baffling moment where you just like go what did it was it a controversial uh, thing at the time i don't think it would have got in the papers i think the only people that were covering it were the evening standard and they were probably grateful that he'd come to do a speech but it was just like it's really not like distasteful unpleasant sort of like jokes and you're just like come on mate i don't think he was the mayor at the time yeah anyway it was just it was a really weird thing anyway that's absolutely anyway so yeah so i'm a big fan of rain of fire (laughs) (laughs) which opened officially in 1987 probably what were extended in 2015 they'll use that as the clip (laughs) (laughs) I always go, oh, really? Was that the bit? Was that the, the yeah. bit pulled out? It was me briefly mentioning that Piers Morgan was a cunt last week. And he's <laughs> like, no, I, I'm not going to retweet that. <laughs> <laughs> he's already destroyed Nish Kumar. I don't want to be next in line. <laughs> fucking. Oh, fucking hell. I don't want to fight with Piers Morgan. So, um, uh, right, so tell us about Rain and Fire. Who directed it? Uh, Rob Bowman was the guy. He did the X Files movie, and he did um, he did episodes of the X Files. I think that's how he got into it. I think he was a TV director who then <laughs> ended up doing the movie, and then from that tried to expand into a further movie career. I've always been a big fan of Rain of Fire. I think it's a better film. I think it's a really silly film, but I think it, it knows what it is and really plays up to that kind of quite silly big action movie. I like it's one of like Christian Bale does that thing as well where. Um, he, he discovers the dragons at the start in the Docklands extension. And I think he's meant to... Have, I don't know if that's why. I think he's meant to have, like, burnt vocal cords a bit. So in the future, he sounds like Frank Butcher from... East End, <laughs> not this well, he's doing, like a, he's doing, like, a Cockney accent, isn't he? Yeah. It's, like, we, it's properly British, uh, post-apocalyptic. But um, when was it made? So, I think it's 2005, I think. So is it after Batman Begins? It might be. It might be. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it must be a, a, yeah, a year or two. No, no, it can't be 2005, surely, because he went straight from The Machinist. 2002. Batman, 2002. 2002, right, yeah. So it was, just, it was after American Psycho, but before um, Batman Begins. Yeah, sure, okay. Because he, he lost so much weight for The Machinist that yeah. when he went on to do Batman Begins, he had to put on loads of muscle. But he put on too much, and uh, he basically got really. He didn't just get muscly; he got fat for doing Batman, and then he had to <laughs> he had to lose weight again because he put on because he did it so quickly. I, I don't. You he lost that, all the. There's that thing this week about Robert Pattinson, who's apparently in lockdown somewhere, and he's got his personal trainer who's saying, "Make sure you keep up <laughs> on your training for Batman." 
And in this interview, he's just gone, I'm not. I'm just eating. <laughs> he's like, can't do anything. Can't get to me. We're in lockdown. <laughs> so just yeah, f- fuck them. It's like, uh, it's like uh, there might be Bond reshoots and Daniel Craig's just like, well, fucking, you can see Jai, my muscles back on. I'm not fucking, well, I've got to do all that training. <laughs> in the off chance, I'm allowed out to do some filming at some point in the next 10 months. That's what, um, uh, uh, is it Zoe Kravitz, who's playing Catwoman? Oh, right, yeah. She just said, uh, they were like saying, make sure you keep up with your training. And she just said, nah, you just better let the Catwoman suit out a couple of sizes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all the actors are getting rebellious. They're just like, what, do you want? what are you going to do about it? <laughs> are you going to come over here? <laughs> well, do you think I, I, it's like they're talking about it now, aren't they? Starting up a film production again. With uh, but It's just how is it possibly going to work? You're going to have to film people being uh, two metres apart all the time. The Just sound film. is going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the sound will probably be all right because of the boom mics. They can... Um... That'll extend. They can do that, probably. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, I guess they'll just use zooms. For the, be like uh, this. A bit, be like a bit, a film. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> I mean, a bit, been, a bit has been pitched. We'd make a movie feature length. With, uh, we can get all the stars in, and we'll do it on Zoom. <laughs> It'll be Ben Affleck and Whacking Phoenix having a Zoom chat. Where'd you keep your Oscars? Just behind me. That'd be That's, the temptation, uh, wouldn't it? To just have people <laughs> just with all their uh, Oscars behind them, like all of all of the movie stars, and they just put their Oscars out. Oh, and then you know. Poor Adam Sandler would have his Adam Sandler would have his Golden Raspberry Awards <laughs> and his MTV Best Kiss. What did you get that for? Didn't they get something for an hour pronouncing Chuck and Larry or something like that? Okay, okay. Um, I'm, I'm making it up. I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Like, does it feel like you've had things coming through again that are like, oh, maybe we'll start filming on X date, or is everything still? No. <laughs> to be fair, I didn't get I didn't get that before lockdown either. <laughs> I, I would be I would be very surprised, you know. If people saying, Oh well, I'm not getting as many emails, I'm getting just as many. <laughs> if not more, I'm getting more. <laughs> great, it's great being in lockdown. Absolutely. It is a worry. I do worry about all these kind of I've got this thing now, I don't know whether I'm thinking about um I haven't ridden a bike since I was about 10 and I'm, I'm thinking about getting on one of the Boris bikes just to see if I can do it because I'm sort of thinking when this lockdown starts lifting and they go everything get back to normal it's like I don't know if I want to be on the tube so I'm now thinking do I now start trying to ride a bike but I think this will be a, a, a terrible idea I've got no idea if I can ride a bike they say you never forget but I think I'm going to sit on that bike and it's going to go one way and I'm going to end up on the floor I've got nothing to fucking do. That's the age-old fear, isn't it? Um, I reckon now is the best time to see if you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. How will you feel about riding on the tube again and things like that? I hated it anyway. So it's just got to be the same? Um, I, I think I've got, um, I've got a, an actual um, <laughs> excuse not to do it now. <laughs> yeah. Other than the fact that mental health and anxiety and all of that stuff, 
I just got an actual reason, which is, you know, Corona, not to get, you know, just in case anyone's in any doubt. <laughs> oh, God. Corona, what's this? Corona? <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Do you remember Joe Wicks? Fucking hell. <laughs> so long ago. I mean, so, it's, I'm, I'm, it's like we've I'm got to get up. <laughs> Go on. I was just going to say, it's now we sort of thinking, oh yeah, there's other bits of like the beginning of the lockdown that now feel like, um, like completely different eras, especially with what like government advice is. They start like yes. out like, oh yeah, we're going to be doing this, and then a couple of days later, it just sort of goes, and you've got to think back and go, wait, what about all that other stuff we're meant to be doing? Because if it's if it's anything that they have to rely on, it just doesn't really happen. If it's like, well, the one way we're going to get back to work is if we start testing people, and then a couple of weeks later, all that kind of goes out the window when they can't do it, and they go, yeah, maybe just go back to work anyway. See see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. Isn't that really dangerous? Well. No one knows for sure unless we actually do it. So maybe let's give it a go. See what happens. Well, I've been thinking about a couple of things. Uh, one of them was about uh, Georgia reopening hair salons and uh, tattoo parlours. And um, I was thinking, at first you go, that is fucking crazy. And also, how redneck can you get that it's kind of like... And it's and it's it sort of like feels like it's the government pandering to a certain demographic of people, which just like well we'll keep them happy because we've got an election coming up, and they're our core demographic, like you know bikers that want uh, tattoos. I know that everyone has tattoos now, but it's just kind of like you know. But then I was thinking, um, and I don't believe that there has been sort of any thought put into it whatsoever, other than pandering to a demographic. Yeah. But I do think that if you were to open all the tattoo parlours, that's actually not a bad place to start. Because if you were to open up cinemas, restaurants, um, obviously supermarkets are open, but if you were to make like places with mass appeal and mass demand, pubs, yeah. you know, they were just like, oh, we might open up pub gardens. Have you ever been into a pub garden on a summer's day? It's absolutely fucking rams, right? It's gonna that that is more dangerous than just opening up a pub, right? Yeah. The people have just been fucking. You know, it's, I always just think of the pear tree up in Edinburgh during the festival, yeah, where yeah. it's just just shoulder to shoulder. You know, there's like nine deep at the bar. It's just like if you open up a fucking pub and you're just saying everyone's got to practice social distancing, you can fuck that right off. That's never gonna happen. You open up a tattoo parlor. Who wants to get a tattoo? Who's so desperate right now, like chomping at the bit to get a tattoo, right? It's probably not many old people, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's a, such a niche thing, right? Even if you've even if you're covered in tattoos, I think you could probably wait a bit before you yeah, actually go yeah. and get a tattoo. So if you open up a tattoo parlor, yeah, sure, people can go and get tattoos, but also it's a one-on-one activity, right? Where they've probably got a face mask anyway. And gloves, rubber gloves. The, the and gloves, gloves, right? So they're probably all sort of like, uh, you know, covered up anyway when they're doing it. It's a one-on-one thing. So it's not like you've got like 20 people in a room. You've got two people in a room. And there's not going to be like a huge queue like for the supermarket going around the block. There'll be, you know, there's like, um, like one, two, three tattoo parlours down Holloway Road. 
and I go past them and they're always empty. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you open up the tattoo parlours. It's a really good sort of like, maybe it's a kind of a quite a clever testing ground to go, well, we open it. It seems like such a random thing to open, but then you go, actually, if you just open them all up, then yeah. it's a good way to say, well, have the people with tattoos been spreading <laughs> Uh, corona and if they haven't then let's sort of like open up like the next thing you know yeah. like um you know uh, uh pornographic bookshops you know <laughs> um <laughs> that would be great that was the next thing <laughs> we're opening up wank shops <laughs> and tattoo parlors like, brilliant and uh <laughs> at the bottom of berwick street will be open up and nothing else in london Absolutely brilliant. I'm going to get my cock ring uh, <laughs> extended. And I'm, going to get, uh, I'm going to get an extra cock hole put in. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, I've been wanting to do it for ages, but I've been able to get out because of Rona. So I'm going to get a hole punched into my cock and uh, then I'm going to get a tattoo to celebrate it. Uh, and then um, I'll probably leave the Razzle Mags for a couple of weeks while my cock heals. But uh, as soon as it does, I'm going in there. Uh, yeah, I still use magazines. I'm old school. Uh, I <laughs> I've still got dial-up. I've still got dial-up. So, uh, so uh, I've found <laughs> I have more of a connection, a tactile connection with paper, really. Uh, it doesn't have to be pornographic. Any, any, any uh, Argos catalogue, that gets me going. <laughs> <laughs> so I think tattoo parlours are quite good. Oh, you're probably um, right. Yeah, it's a niche thing, isn't it? So if people go, "Well, we demand tattoo parlours are open," it's probably a good thing to go. Sure, go for it. Sure, yeah, as long like. as you practice social distancing. Yeah. How big is the queue going to be? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, so, so that's what I thought about that. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was um, the relativity of time, Nathaniel. Wow, wow, you have been thinking. Yeah. Do you mean in this instance how, how it sort of speeds up and slows down or seems to? Yeah, it's mental, right? So um, six o'clock might as well be midnight for me at the moment. It's sort of like, um, I think like the morning zips by, right? So I woke up at however, whatever time, like 10 o'clock this morning. And before I knew it, it was three o'clock. And I was just like, oh God, I better, better have lunch, right? So I had lunch and now I'm here, we're doing this. This will finish at six. And then um, before you know it, it's going to be another day, another day gone. And today yes. is Wednesday, so that's the whole of Wednesday taken up. So tomorrow's yes. Thursday, which is practically the weekend, and then we're ne next Monday, right? <laughs> so I, I find it's crazy. I think it like I know people <laughs> are talking about being bored and things. I cannot believe how quickly a day goes or a week yeah. goes. And when even when you're saying it's eight weeks of lockdown, I'm like, what? Eight weeks? When you think about that in terms of like a real normal span of time, you'd be like, yeah, that was ages ago. This just feels like I, zipping by. I can't, I can't even remember if we talked about this last week. I had a gig just before lockdown. Okay, it, could have, it, could, it could have been two weeks ago. It could yeah. have been a uh, hundred years ago. I've got no, got no idea. But so this is what I mean about relativity, right? And so sometimes... Before lockdown, like, I tell you what, so I was busy the last two weeks recording music, right? And the days were sort of like um, quite long because I was busy and I was doing stuff and I was going from room to room uh, and I was working on things and using my brain and, uh, and, and uh, the, the weeks just felt, uh, those two weeks felt really long. 
right? Whereas this week is just like zip by, right? Now, um, this is going to, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent, right? So when they made The Rise of Skywalker, yeah? Go on. Right? When they made The Rise of Skywalker, they tested the film for Disney, right? Uh, and, and the production for Rise of Skywalker was troubled. Yeah? They had like three different edits. They had a George Lucas cut, they had a Kathleen Kennedy cut, and they had a J.J. Abrams cut. And uh, they were all pushing different things. And they showed all three of the cuts and basically none of them were good enough. And they were filming, they were refilming scenes right up until maybe 10 days before it got released. And, and they were re-editing it and doing all of that. So when they, at the end of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, there is a scene where Lando and all of the other planets, they arrive right at the end in all of their thousands of spaceships to save the day, right? That scene was added quite late, right? So you go, how did they create all of those spaceships? So the way they did it was they went through all of the films that they'd made, like Rogue One and, um, uh, and all of the stuff that Lucasfilm have got on standby, you know, it's like sort of stuff from uh, the TV series that they've made and Solo and, you know, all three of the films that they made and all of, all of the assets that they had at Lucasfilm. And they uh, just reused lots of the models and repositioned them. Yeah, and then they gave some of them a paint job and they put like dents in some of them and they copied and pasted them but that's how they did it right which is kind of like you go fucking hell they did a lot of special effects in a short amount of time those those spaceships were pre-existing assets which right. they could reuse right yeah so so the way i think about it is this when i have a meeting uh let's just say uh, on an average day uh, out of lockdown, I've got five meetings in Soho, right? Uh, I've got to get my cock ring put in. Right? <laughs> I've got to eat to eat some ramen. <laughs> uh, I've got to have uh, a couple of my ideas for TV shows rejected. Uh, I've got to pop into pop. Um, remember that you don't work there anymore. And then uh, I'll, I'll skulk around Soho Theatre until someone recognises me, right? So those are five things that I've got to do on an average day in Soho, right? Five important meetings, yeah? So every time I go out and I do stuff, let's say I go to a restaurant that I've never been to before, my brain is processing that information for the first time, yeah? And it's building in my head an asset of that room, yeah? And it takes, it takes time to do that. So time is slowing down because there's so much information that's being bombarded at me. Let's see, I, say I meet a new person for the first time. I'm processing their face. I'm remembering how they smell. Uh, I'm remembering their voice. Do you know all of this other stuff that's happening in my head? In the back of my head, so, subconsciously, I'm creating new assets of these new environments, of these new people. And so because of that, because I'm busy and all these things are happening, time is slowing down, right? When I'm living at home in my flat for eight weeks, yeah, I go into my living room, right, and I've already got all of that information, yeah? So I'm not creating new information in my head. I go into my room. When I first moved into my flat, it would be sort of like, and, uh, and when I was sort of like decorating my flat and putting up artwork and stuff, like even now, if I put up a new picture, I will my eyes will be drawn to that picture and I'll be like, oh, I love that picture that I've just put up. That goes in the perfect place. But I'm processing where it is. And then after a couple of days, I stop noticing it, right? 
and it's just part of the part of the, the background so what might happen is i go into my living room at dusk and i haven't been in my living room at dusk before um but i've been in my living room before and the walls are a different sort of shade that i've not noticed before so i'm sort of like processing information like that but basically what i'm doing is i'm painting an asset you know it's like i'm doing a paint job on an asset that i already own i'm not creating the room from scratch anymore i'm just i'm just i'm just giving it a different color right yeah. and when you're in your house for eight days because your brain isn't constantly slowing down to process new information the time just zips by right it's like when old people say that time goes by so quickly that is a because let's just say you're a hundred years old one year is a hundredth of your time on the planet whereas if you're three years old one year is a third of your time on the planet mm. so time operates differently like that but also it's the fact that um if you're in like a nursing home or a care home then it's kind of like your uh, the your frame of reference, well, let's say you're off sick at school, right? Uh, and you're in bed all day, yeah? Uh, when you're at school, you're learning stuff and the weeks just fucking drag for ages. But when you have a day off, it just it's over like that. Or if you're on your school holidays for six weeks, you know, and let's say you do go on holiday, but the holiday goes really quick because you get used to your villa, like, or your holiday home or wherever you are. It gets, uh, it, 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 you get used to that and then your, 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 your holiday goes really quickly. But when you're at school, you're kind of learning. There's new information being given to you all the time. So time slows down again. So the weeks are long and the weekends go just, just fly by because you're used to your home a lot more than you are at your school. I think that, I think that when they say time is relative, it's not necessarily about the individual, but it's about what you're doing with your time maybe that is what stephen hawking's book is about but you've just told us it in actual time i make i think all that makes perfect sense i was thinking I about got, well i still and i got to link it to rise of skywalker as well well done i was thinking as well to link it to something else when it's a bit like as well in deep red where he comes into the the building and he spots something at the corner of his eye which is different from when he was in the place before and he knows there's something and that's why subconsciously as an audience we also realize that there's something different about the room we've just been in and that is the whole kind of puzzle of the film mm. i won't spoil it for anyone but watch the film it is excellent but there is oh. something why you you as an audience that's played that's a basic <laughs> idea that you're shown something once when you're shown the same thing again your, you subconsciously pick up slight differences and that is sort of based on that same principle. I had a thing today actually, I went to, uh, I put some washing on and 10 minutes later I went upstairs and went, did I actually turn that on? I had to go back and check and I think you're right, it's that sort of contracted time is that when your brain takes in information, if it's something you do all the time, you don't really remember if you've done, you can't say, oh I definitely turned that on because it's so <laughs> familiar. <clears throat> So you find yourself going back and checking things like did i do that i did do it but also um it's it's like your brain isn't making new memories so yeah. so you go i i switched i know i switched on the washing machine at some point mm. but it might not have been today it might yeah. have been a week ago or yesterday and so you have to sort of like double check little things like that because your brain isn't like flagging stuff up as important because yeah. you're just used to doing it exactly um yeah I, I yeah i mean i just having said that when i used to do data entry that was the longest most boring tedious job i have ever 
I've ever done. But I suppose what was, what was, what was nothing interesting about that, but what was different about that was that it would be like you would look at a piece of, you would get like a, a form and it would have someone's address and their postcode in it and they'd all be different. And um, obviously like individual addresses and postcodes and you would have to, it would be handwritten and you'd have to make out the handwriting and put it into a database and you'd have to fill in all of the bits and then you'd put it on, you'd take it from the left side and you put it on the right side on the pile over there and then you'd move on to the next one and set up another one and you would do that Monday to Wednesday lunchtime and then on Wednesday lunchtime your job changed to stuffing envelopes and you'd do that Wednesday lunchtime to Friday and you'd get to a point halfway through Tuesday where you could not fucking wait for Wednesday lunchtime. And then you'd get to Friday and you'd be like, I can't wait for fucking... Monday morning. Death. Just <laughs> death. Death. Um, it was the worst job, worst job I ever had. I wrote, oh, I think you stink while I was doing that. <laughs> I remember you wrote the, the song about data entry as well. I wrote my song about admin, but I didn't write, I wrote that remembering my job in admin. Okay. Um, but it was a specific job that I had in Hatfield, not the one I had in St Albans with Asset Wear. They were they were nice people, um, but uh, the one in the one in Hatfield was a fucking slog. But I wrote a musical there. I I, I found. Do you remember that we got to play a song soon? And in the olden days, when we first started doing um, uh, shows, I found my first ever twenty. It was for it was for mostly comedy in Hitchin. Oh yeah. And they never paid much. I think I got travel or something like that. And as sort of a payment, they would give you like a DVD of your gig. And I found it the other day. I found like the first ever twenty that I did. Um, and I've got it. I've got it on my. I've, I've got it on my computer. And I used to have a joke. It was just like always about. It was all of my stuff was about what I was up to at the time. And it was I was working in admin. And I had a joke where it was like. Uh, I've worked out that if you can make your browser on your computer the exact size of your head, <laughs> that you can go on Facebook all day and your boss won't notice. <laughs> I said, you've just got to stay really, really still. <laughs> Good job. It was funny. It was really funny. Um, uh, uh, finish off talking about Rain of Fire. I feel like I bulldozed you a bit there. No, no, I think that's it. I think it's great. I think it's, um, I really like, it's one of those, like, it's a really nice premise. And then Matthew McConaughey shows up and he's this real sort of cartoonish character. But to me, it just feels like it's one of those films that knows exactly what it is. It's quite silly, but in a real, like, it's quite bombastic. It's, it's not, it's not ashamed of itself. And that's what I really like about it. It's got this thing, it's like, it's like this. It's like a sort of big action movie. It's not like, I mean, I don't mean it's like, I'm sort of doing it down to say it's a bit dumb, but it kind of, it knows, it knows its own thing. It's sort of very self-aware. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun and knows yeah. it. And it's got silly ideas in it, like them recreating yeah. Star Wars and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of like when Matthew McConaughey, before he went into his um, rom-com period. Exactly. And it was him sort of like making interesting films. Well, that was it. He could, he could came into the game, didn't he, via Joel Schumacher's uh, Time to Kill. And it was almost like he was invented to be a star, wasn't he? It's like, we need a yeah. star for this film that's already loaded with other big names. It's got Samuel L. Jackson, 
Sandra Bullock, uh, Kevin Spacey, Donald Sutherland. And so they bring in this guy who's like an unknown and it's like, you know, who, who could we get to be this, the lead in this big film? And it was like, well, we'll, get that guy. we'll get that guy with the paddle from Dazed and Confused. Yeah, exactly. No, he didn't have the paddle. He wasn't the paddler. That was Ben Affleck, no, no, wasn't it? He was it? the older one, wasn't he? He's the, uh, the older guy in Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's like, that, that was one of those funny inventions. And Joel, Joel Schumacher tried to do exactly the same thing with um, Colin Farrell, didn't he, later? What was that film yeah. called? Tigerland, wasn't it? Tigerland. And they, that, well, that, was Steven, that was Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg was like, I reckon Colin Farrell was going to be huge. And then everyone started casting him. Yeah, and but it then, But that's what, that's what Spielberg does, doesn't he? He did it with Shia LaBeouf, where he was just like, no, he's going to be in the Transformers movies. He's going to be in Indiana Jones. Shia LaBeouf is going to be a big star. <laughs> Take the paper bag off your head. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, you know, fame is bad for people, I think. Um, what did I watch? I watched a film called Domino this week. Is that Tony Scott? No, not that one. Oh. It, it's Brian De Palma's film that he made in 2019. Oh, I saw something about this. Is it terrible? Um, now, hmm. <laughs> hmm. It's not terrible. It's weird because it's set in June or July 2020 and no one's wearing a face mask. Or, oh, well, that's uh, it. Well, at least we know we're coming out of it then by then. It, it, lo- it lost me there. No one was social distancing or anything. It was uh, set a year in the future. It's sort of about terrorism. It's sort of got quite a convoluted plot, and it's quite... I'd say it was sort of boring. Uh, but he... Uh, it's weird, because it's not like a fall from grace like Dario Argento, where he's made sort of like... Because um, I think they're quite similar filmmakers as well, yeah. especially their 70s stuff. Yeah. It's all got like a dreamlike quality to it. Um, uh, it yeah, I, it, I think it's for completists. But I'm, there are some. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on a bit of a Brian De Palma thing at the minute. I'm kind of into. I think I'm going to watch Domino in the next couple of weeks. Maybe we should. Uh, I, I think how much this week. I think it's worth watching. There are some, like, classic... It's like... Because I'm looking at it, because I saw Obsession recently, and I think that is one of the best films I've seen in a long, long, long time, right? Um, and that was made in the early 70s. Mm. I think Obsession is incredible, but basically Obsession was Brian De Palma saying, I want to remake Vertigo. How do we remake Vertigo? And, um, and so when you're watching it, I'm always sort of like... It's kind of like I've got this big gap in my in my memory. I think of Brian De Palma as kind of like um, Obsession and Blowout and Sisters and all of those 70s movies that he made. And then, th- and then I leap to now. But in actual fact, I don't even think of Carlito's Way hmm. uh, or Mission Impossible or Mission to Mars and... Um, uh, and or, or Snake Eyes, you know, he made he made loads of films. He kept making films. This film is kind of like it's not as bad as late uh, Dario Argento. Dario Argento made this film called Giallo with Adrian Brody in it, and it is absolute fucking shit. It's like a fan made uh, tri- tr- budget tribute to some of the themes that Dario Argento used to be interested in by Dario Argento, and it's just sort of, it's just really, it's just really shit. Um, but, um, uh, but then he made the Dracula film as well, Dracula 3D, 
No, I've never seen that either. I think that, that it's not good, but it's fucking entertaining. It's got Rutger <laughs> Hauer in it as Van Helsing, and it is so shit. But it's also sort of like quite, it sort of like revels in it, not deliberately, but it sort of revels in how shit and crazy it is. Because it's just not a retelling of Dracula, really, but it's period. It's sort of an interesting film. But this Domino film, it's sort of like not a massive fall from grace. And you can see that Brian De Palma is obviously still trying to do stuff. He's like, the, the beginning is basically another rip-off of Vertigo, where he's just basically like going, I'm going to do a Vertigo thing. Um, but it doesn't have any real repercussions later on in the film. But it's kind of like, you know, like how there's a rooftop chase and then he falls off the roof and you think, right, well, he's going to get like a fear of heights. That never comes back at any point. It's like you're setting up a character trait at the beginning of the film, like they do in Vertigo, but it just doesn't have any repercussions. So there are like Brian De Palma-esque moments within the film that he's really tried to do, but it's kind of like got that digital film kind of quality to it where it just all feels a little bit cheap. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but... It's kind of like, it's a, quite a boring pedestrian film that has obviously been made by a guy that's really trying to sort of add his value to it. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen like a couple of things recently that he did a film, I think called Redacted as well, that's apparently quite good. So I think I might just be, I might just try and go through watching all of them again over the next few months. Have a it, real doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like he didn't turn up for work. It feels like the script just wasn't strong enough and it wasn't an interesting enough film. Yeah, he's he's trying, trying. He hasn't got a lot of money. He hasn't got perhaps a great script, but he's still trying to go, well, I'm still Brian De Palma. I'm still going to make the best film I can, given the circumstances. Yeah. It's got Guy Pearce in it. Okay. There's one, there's one bit when Guy Pearce is having dinner in his house with this terrorist and Guy Pearce is eating dinner and um, it's like, you know when you're distracted with how bad the, ac- the, 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 the food acting is? Right, yes. He, yeah. spend, he spends the whole meal soaring up this one slice of tomato on his plate <laughs> and it's on his fork and then they cut away for when he actually puts it in his mouth and when they cut back to him he's chewing and it's just sort of like you don't listen to anything that they're saying because you're just looking at how much of an effort it's like when um, I used to watch King of Queens or Everybody Loves Raymond and they'd have a sandwich and they'd go in and they'd act like they were taking this huge bite and then they'd nibble it and then now they're talking, they're like chewing and like really, but you're like going, you've not, there's nothing, you've taken nothing out of that sandwich. It's like a tiny little crescent. You've taken like a toenail clipping out of that fucking sandwich. Just look like, like really like acting your fucking ass off, like eating this fucking sandwich. So it's a bit like that, but it's Guy Pierce doing it. So it's just kind of like you're going, oh my God, how, how delicious is that tomato? <laughs> you think, you're making a meal of that. <laughs> ah, stuff like that. Hey, I think Gene Hackman never eats on screen or stops eating on screen for that reason, where he says, I've never seen a convincing performance of someone eating. So if it's in the script, he says, can we not have this? I think like he made a point of trying to cut that out of films he's in because he, every time he'd watch it back, he'd sort of see the sort of self-conscious himself eating or something. And he says, yeah. I just can't do it. You just can't do it properly. So I, know, whenever, I, think. I had to eat quite a lot when we did Uncle. Um, 
and on the first take, I would always just get this sandwich and I would just smash it into my face, right? <laughs> and then you'd have to do like 10 takes. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh God. And they'd be like, we're breaking for lunch. And I'd be like, I'm lying down. I'm having to lie down. Um, and there was also, there was a party scene in the first series where I go along the entire the entire party, uh, the, all of the party snacks, and I'd get one thing from every bowl. And I just did it randomly. And then I had to remember what order I did it in for every single take. And it was, uh, I spent the whole time just sort of like trying to remember when do I eat the breadstick and when do I eat the sausage roll and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, food is quite difficult. But Brad Pitt does it. He eats in every film, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that's one of his things. Yeah, he loves it. That's, his, prop, that's, isn't it? that's his I'll be back. He, uh, he puts it in every film where he's just sort of like eating. Yeah. Should we do some fan mail? Let's do some fan mail. Uh, uh, Natalie, uh, play that funky music, bad girl. <laughs> um, hi, Nick and Nat. Hope you're both safe and well. This week, technically, it was last week, but after you recorded the show. Now I have to go. Technically, it was last week, but after Sorry, sorry, sorry. Off. From the top, cue the yeah. music. Right. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick and Nat. Hope you're both safe and well this week. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. No, 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 no. Hi, Nick and Nat. Hope you're... No, uh, uh, reset the music. Okay. <laughs> and maestro, uh, say those sweet, sweet words. Okay. Hi, Nick and Nat. Hope you're both safe and well this week. Technically, it was last week, but after you recorded the show... I have been a fan of Nick and Matt's film club, where we all got to look at our phones whilst Cool Runnings was on in the background. It was really fun, and I hope there will be more to come. Thank you for continuing to provide us with five-star content, Emma. P.S. I have toured my friends. Well, thanks, Emma. We did that last week. We watched Cool Runnings together. Well, we didn't, did we? No, separately. We watched it separately in our own... In our I own house. Didn't watch any of it. I spent the whole time staring at my phone. Yeah. Um, but what I think we could do is we could do it on Zoom. And we could watch the film and then people could follow us at home. And we could almost do sort of like a live commentary while we're doing it. Um, so uh, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it this week, but I think we should do it next week. Yeah, we'll probably do another film next week if people want to join in. We'll... we'll figure that out we'll put something on our respective social medias and do something if, with that if anyone's listening and thinks they can help us work out how to do it then uh, then let us know um afternoon or evening don't know what time it is where you are and what even is time anymore Point. I love I love the show and I love you fuzzy bears. Uh, I like to pop you in my ears, crack open a tinny, and enjoy two hours of afternoon delight while I'm listening to you. That does sound. That sounds like you're. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> what do you like to do for an afternoon? Pretty much sounds like I like doing what you're doing. <laughs> Have a sizzling Friday, my cherubs. Tony. Um, what do you like doing in the afternoon now? Well, on a Friday afternoon, I'm usually doing fan club. Uh, <laughs> which is, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> in fact, we're not now. Um, what do I do on Friday? On Fridays, I do therapy. 
Do you still do it? Are you still doing yeah, it? Yeah, doing it over doing it over Skype. How are you finding? Bit weird, but it's all right. I've, I've, I've actually weirdly got used to it very quickly. Mm. Very quickly. Mm. Yeah, I've stopped doing therapy while we're in lockdown, and I'm actually I'm all right with it at the moment. I think I'm fine. Um, I do believe in therapy a lot. I think it's really good, but also I do feel like um, it can be it can be there when you need it rather than as a regular thing. I went through like I, I did a lot of processing over an amount of time, and then I felt like I was trying to come up with things to talk about, and then I felt like I was dredging stuff up that I didn't really need to dredge up. Yeah. And I was actually feeling really bad about all the stuff that I was feeling. And then when I stopped doing therapy for a little bit, those things sort of settled down and then the more important things sort of floated to the surface. And I can kind of deal with that now. And I think therapy has given me the tools with uh, which to deal with stuff and to give me some perspective. And I know it's there when I need it, but actually um, uh, I'm, I'm in a better place than I was. Um, but well done that. Yeah, would you think you'll start again when you uh, when you're out of lockdown? Yeah, I might do. Um, um, I, I, do, I don't feel like I need it right now. Okay. But I, but I don't, I think that I wouldn't be in this position if I hadn't been to therapy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It would be it, 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 therapy has absolutely helped, and right now I've got the tools that I need in order to look after myself. And when I need to go back to therapy, I haven't got the stigma and I'm not worried about going back. I can kind of just do it whenever I need. Um, okay. All right, I was thinking of putting a wash on. It will mainly consist of my duvet cover and pillows. Should I iron them before I slink them back onto my bed? I never have done it, but I've got time on my hands now. Will. Seems like a waste. I wouldn't bother. I, uh, I wouldn't bother. I mean, duvet cases are just absolutely horrific to iron. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but good for you for washing your duvet. I have to say, I only do mine when, you know, uh, it's an emergency. <laughs> yeah. when, when, I, when, it takes, when it takes a lot of effort to just fold, fold it off. <laughs> There's sort of like... Uh, You'd want four arms. It's just, you know, when you get into bed and all, all you can hear is crackling. <laughs> That's when you need to change your duvet case. It's these times of COVID. If I wasn't at home, I wouldn't. Anyway. Hello, Nick and Nat. You are one of the best. We're two of the best, I think you'll find. I've been trying to learn how to soldier in this lockdown and failing miserably. Have you learned any new skills to beach me? Well, I've learned how to do accents. How about you? Regional accents. That's my skill. How about you, Nathaniel? I'm not sure I've learned anything whatsoever. I'll have a think about that until you next week. God, that's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. Mm. Lastly this week, hey! Hey! I'm thinking of nipping to the post office, but not sure what time it shuts. Do you have any idea, Stan? Uh, about five o'clock, isn't it? Five, usually. Usually about five. About five. I get um, there maybe four, half four, just in the safe side. Just in case there's a queue, but uh, but you should be all right if you get there before five. And I know that you have asked that question to be a little bit of a time-wasting, pathetic cunt, Stan. But uh, the joke's on you, because we, we did actually have an answer. I think sometimes it's seven, actually, on a weekday. Maybe uh, maybe it's eight o'clock on a Wednesday and a Saturday. 
the... I think on perhaps on a Saturday, Stan, it might shut about two in the afternoon. Yeah, bet you feel like a right proper cunt now, don't you, Stan? <laughs> Go fuck yourself. That's the fan mail for this week. Uh, thanks, guys. Keep writing in. <laughs> Let's play this song. Fan Club on Fubar Radio. So, right, we're back uh, in the studio. We're not in the studio. We are uh, in uh, our bedrooms and living rooms. Um, so, yeah, we are now, direct from Las Vegas, we are joined by singing sensation Matt Goss. Hello. Hello, my friend. How are you? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and whatever time it is. I don't really good know. Good morning. How are you doing? Are you all right? I am actually, yeah. It's just, it's uh, like everybody else, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day at times, but it's all trying to do our thing, I think, really just to stay motivated and stay connected to this thing. Oh, well, I certainly am. I'm just, I just want to do as much as I can. And I've been, uh, I've been a bit lonely at times, not going to lie, but it's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely humbling, you know. So are you there letters. by yourself? Are you, are you in lockdown by yourself? Yeah, I am. I have a little French bulldog, which, He's basically in everything that is valuable. He's just eating. So I may well come out of this absolutely nothing, but it's um, yeah, just me and a French bulldog. My, my French bulldog, Reggie. Yeah. Oh, where do you get the name Reggie from? Um, after Reggie Craig, he was, he was one of my old mates, and we used to speak. Oh, really? I, we used to, yeah, we used to speak a lot. Reggie used to call me um, from prison. Uh, or he would say, calling from Her Majesty's. And um, he used to read poetry and we used to chat and it was just, a, it was an incredible uh, friendship we started to build. And um, yeah, so that's why I named after Reggie. How did you two How did, how did that happen? It was a strange one really, because um, I was having a, having a sitting down at a sushi restaurant and um, I'll never forget, it. I was like, hello? Phone call, he's like, hello, hello Matt. I was like, yeah, he was like, it's Reggie. I went, Reggie, he went, Reggie Cray. I'm like, hello, how you doing Reggie? And uh it was just one of those moments we just got on. He read my book. He was a very interesting man, and he was full of uh, full of things that he wanted to do. You remember, he did serve thirty years. He did his time, yeah. and he uh, he wanted to be a clothing designer. He wanted to, you know, he had so many things that he wanted to do. He sent me sketches of what of the designs he wanted to do. Just an incredibly interesting person, and um, obviously both being twins and. We just had a sense of I went to visit him in, in, in Her Majesty's, and he was just a very, very nice man. So he, he was. knew of you then? So he knew of you from prison and was like, was aware of you, and I guess sort of felt a kinship or something, or saw you as like, yeah, another yeah. another set of twins or something, or just wanted to connect Yeah, together. I think so. He said he felt very, he, he understood the dynamic of being a twin, and he understood the dynamic of, of wanting your own identity. I think that's where it came from, really. Like when you're a twin, you pine for possibly over overcompensate for your own identity being a twin, because people think if you break your wrist, your brother's going to break his wrist. It's right. really people think you are literally you know, the same person sometimes, but it's uh, um, that's not the case. Yeah. we're very, very different uh, if, people. If I slapped you, your brother would feel it. 
That sounds a bit really. kinky. That sounds a little kinky <laughs> to me, bro. I think you've been in lockdown too long. <laughs> yeah, I have. I, have I think you're hitting on me. Yeah. <laughs> Far away. So, Far away. Or maybe he's my brother, even weirder. Maybe he just hit on Luke subconsciously, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. I'll let, I'll let right. him know. I'll let him know later. Okay, sure. Oh, brilliant. Oh, great. I've, I've scored. That's fantastic. Um, so uh, tell us about this sinker that, you've, that you're releasing. Is it, it's out oh. now, isn't it? Sorry? It's out now, isn't it? Yeah, it's available on all digital platforms, but it was, it was meant to be uh, my first single off the new album, but, and I was lucky enough to record it with one of my dear friends, uh, uh, Babyface, Kenny, and um, I think he's one of the greatest soul producers in the world, and uh, we were meant to release it with all the bells and whistles, and, but I just said to him, why are we waiting during this time? Why are we, do we just not try and get involved? And when I would, I'd see all this, this footage of the NHS, and it was just, it's so poignant, and it makes me so homesick, and it just makes me want to get, get in, stuck in and try and help in some way. Um, it was heart-wrenching for me to see people suffering and also it's so inspiring to see our earth angels at NHS walk towards danger while knowing that they could possibly be in harm's way. I've spoke, I spoke to many. I go live on my Instagram at 9 p.m. every day, UK time, and I spoke to a lot of nurses and doctors yesterday, and they were telling me, you know, that they've all had it they've they've all they all got it and got through it and went straight back to work and crack start you know continue to crack on with helping people and for me it was not really about a single listen i'm really proud of the song and it, i've never heard a man sing it before and i play it in my show here in las vegas for you know it actually the show would have been 11 years in this june um and i always get an incredible reaction the stand ovation for that song and babyface came by the um the show and he said let's record it and mm. so we recorded it and it turned out really well because it's an alicia keys cover right absolutely yeah 2003 though it's, it's it's way it's back further than you than you realize yeah yeah yeah, so, Richie, yeah, yeah. i guess it's become its own standard now yeah it is it's a soul classic and that's that's a, it's that's why you always have to think twice before taking on a song like that but um i was in safe hands and the, the, i was proud of my performance on the record and it's just really it's just uh everything means nothing with the without the nhs it just kind of makes sense and you put it with the with the images and also to be honest with you being one of the lads what at the show i always see the fellas always say thank you for singing music that connects to us as well as fellas and so really it's a baby making record so i'm hoping that this record will be used for making future generations fellas so, well, well I'm on my own at the moment, so well, there's a lot of self-love involved. You can still make stuff. I'm probably so doing more harm than good. Yeah, there's a lot of self-love on this call right now. I feel, but it's uh, but we can we can we can live vicariously through the thought of people making love to my record. That's a bit, a bit weird sure. as well. Well, it? if if I make love to your record um, yeah. to myself, uh, will yeah. Luke feel it? I think Luke will feel it. Uh, I'll I'll feel uncomfortable, but he'll definitely feel it. All right, yeah. okay. It's well, a win. It's a win-win, mate. It's a win-win. It is. You're going to be godfather to lots of kids in uh, nine months. Yeah, they're going to have like 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 long hair, like a, a '70s porno moustache with blue eyes. 
Do you think there's going to be a, like a like a population spike when uh, in nine months' time? There's going to be um, like two spikes. There's going to be like a spike while we're in lockdown, and there's also going to be a spike like the day that we're all out of lockdown. I'm everyone's sure going to be that. fucking. I think. I think that. I think there has been a lot of shagging going on in the beginning when people weren't driving each other crazy. Right. And yeah. now I think there there could be a lot of single parents um, after this whole thing. <laughs> That's sure. what I honestly think. I, I'm sure. not really, I don't know about you, but I'm not really, I'm not really, um, I can't even think about like the thought of going out and I'm, I feel even more antisocial than I did before. I don't really, I'm not really looking forward to the madness. I think we've all gone a little bit like a lot of people I know have, have felt a little bit more connected to, um, you know, the the people that they want to be around. And I know somebody said to me the other day, they're going to have a part. Somebody, my friend of mine actually is going to have a party, a dinner party where they bring their own food and their own wine. I'm like, that does not sound like a good time to me. It just, oh. Does it? I'm quite happy sitting in, to be honest. I don't mind. I'm like, I don't really want to go out. I want to kind of do as little as possible that's going to have any effect on on spreading anything. I just want to be... I agree. And I don't have any desire, really, to go out there and suddenly find, you know, you know, somebody to make a baby with. I just, uh, you know, make love, make a baby, or, or even, you know, it's just, it's a lot easier. It's like, the good thing about living by yourself, you can play video games whenever you want and watch whatever you want. And, um, but yeah, I'm just, I think there's going to be, I do think there's going to be a bit of a spike in the old population. I think a lot of people would probably go into town at the very beginning for this thing. So you're currently yeah. in Las Vegas and you're, yeah. and it's 8.30 in the morning there. So you're, uh, you've just got up. It's the beginning of your day. We talk about Las Vegas, but I don't think we said that the proceeds to your single are going to, towards uh, NHS, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, if you go to just, uh, so, um, justgivein.com and then yeah. type in my name Matt Goss M-A-T-T-G-O-S-S um, you can just give anything you want whether it be a quid or a million quid it all yeah. helps so, yeah. So, yeah or to be to be really easy just go to my Instagram just go to Insta my Instagram Matt Goss and there's the, 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 the link is in my bio it takes you straight to the page yeah well, that's great yeah, and your aim is at the moment on your on your just giving page. You're, you're aiming to get fifty thousand, don't you? Fifty fifty. Yeah, yeah. We've got we've got enough for we've we've got enough. It's about a quid a meal, so we've got about thirteen thousand meals. And to be honest with you, I'm just gonna I want to keep doing this even after we're through this. Yeah, of course. Just yeah. keep just have a page where people can know that there's a place. The fellow that's doing Andrew, that he's actually put nine thousand miles on his car, and he's he's just driving around. And uh, giving out food, and he's got he's got a restaurant, and he's just chosen to do it all for cost. He's not making a penny out of this, so, so he really is grateful for anything, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Well done. The smaller charities, thank you. The smaller charities are the ones that need help because they have no, there's no um, stockpile of cash. It's just literally day by day whether they continue can continue or not. So it's kind of insane to see the reactions of the. Of the, of the of the nurses and the, and the ambulance drivers the ambulance drivers are really kind of being left out in a way because they're they really are lonely and they really are isolated and it's it's a quite an intense uh thing to witness the conversation between those guys mm. yeah, Matt. Um, where, where are you based uh usually matt 
Um, I have a I have a place in the UK. I have a place in LA. But my where I where I reside really is is Las Vegas. It's uh, definitely for me. It's definitely a very much much more peaceful place. I'll show you my view. That's my view there. Wow! Oh my God, you live on a golf course. I live on a golf course, mate. Hey, look, there you go. You do live on a golf course. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Yeah, so you've had a residency in Las Vegas for, you were saying, 11 years? It'll be 11 years in June, yeah. And uh, I'm still at the Mirage right now. Um, Yeah. But who knows, when we come out of this, I might be at a different casino. But uh, I did seven years at at Caesars Palace, um, which was amazing. Amazing memories there. Yeah. So how did so? Can you just talk us talk us through you uh, transitioning from brass into uh, being a, a solo artist? Well, it was the thing is with being I guess being a front man is that you just still get on stage and sing. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not really it. It was a shock to me to be honest with you. I didn't really. I don't. I still don't think that we should have split up back then. I think we should have hung in there. And even though the press were being it was no other word that evil to us. It was because we lost a load of money at the time. And, and it was just, it was an extreme experience. Like nothing I've to this day I've ever experienced, but um, my brother just had simply had enough. He just, uh, I've had mm. enough of this. It's just music. He shouldn't be about if we lose our money, that's our problem. You know what I mean? And it was, there was no social media back then. So we were on constantly on our back foot. It's not like now where you could, you can go online and say, nah, that was bollocks. It, it didn't happen that way. Defend yourself, um, but also you can reach out to your fan base and get support that way, can't you? Yeah, but not um, even about support. You can put the record straight. You can say this is what was mm-hmm. said and this is why. Listen, you know we were represented by sound bites. You know when you yeah. went back then, you were just if you, if there was a sound bite or there was a headline, that was your life for the next until the next interview. And and now that you've kind of eradicated the middleman, so you can go directly to the public, which is a lot, mm-hmm. it makes journalism, journalism a lot more responsible. But after that, after Bros, I went to LA and I started to make a record. Um, and I was, within a year I was making, I was in the record plant in, in LA, one of the most famous studios in the world, still one of my favorite studios in the world, and Conway Studios on Melrose in Hollywood. Just such an ama- such amazing studios in my mind, two of the best studios in the world, and I I just started to make a record called The Key, um, and in my world that's one of the favourite albums of my of my fans, and it was a, it was a great record, but it was still a strange thing, really. I just I remember also within a couple of years I was on on stage at Carnegie Hall with the Tokyo String Quartet, and, and in New York, and I just I think it's about getting up getting ready uh and staying on the pitch because there's plenty of other people that want to get on the pitch and play and mm. it, it's hard sometimes because even now like with the show it started I, I started to cut back some of the shows because it didn't feel like my voice anymore it felt like just it started to feel really like work and and hard work physical because singing is very physical for two hours almost two hours a show an hour and 50 minutes mm-hmm. um but what happened was I, 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 rec- I wrote a song called Evil and I was doing the video and then the, Michael Greco said to me, um, I, he saw the video and he said to one of my team, he says, I want him at our casino. Is at the Palms. 
a gentleman called George Maloof. The Maloof family are very famous in Vegas. He was the only, they were the only private owners of, the, of, a, of a casino in Vegas at the time. And um, I went to, they asked, can you come to Vegas tomorrow and uh, for a meeting so we can meet you? And I'm like, okay. So I went to Vegas the next day and uh, a brilliant meeting, you know, casino, all the brothers, the Maloof brothers, and we were all sitting there and we had a great meeting. I left. Two days later, I hadn't heard anything. Michael Greco called me and said, um, he says, don't worry. He said, we're going to make this happen. We really want you here. And and I said, if I'm not at that casino, I'm going to take that Audemars Piguet watch from you. And he goes, I know you will. He said, I know, because we had an agreement. He'd give me his watch if I didn't get the show. And uh, anyway, the next day he called me up and he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, give me the bad news. And he went, you're not getting my watch. Welcome to Las Vegas and uh, yeah and then within within nine months of being at the palms caesar's palace came gary celestina the pre president of caesar's still one of my dear friends came in and said do you want to meet me for lunch tomorrow at the noodle bar at caesar's we sat down over noodles and he said do you want to be here i said i really do and he goes should we do this and we i said yeah we shook hands and that night his whole team was meant to be coming to my show to quote unquote review the show was, and, uh, and, he's, and the director of entertainment said, I understand you and the boss said, have already done the deal. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'll just sit back and enjoy the show then. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a good, uh, it was a good experience. Vegas has, has been some incredible experience. So we used to go and sit on the roof at Caesars where, you know, where Hangover was filmed. And we used to just watch the strip and watch people in the clubs and with a bottle of scotch and just have a chat it was good when you when you play somewhere like caesar's palace do you feel the history of it do you kind of feel the responsibility and the hugeness of it yeah I, 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 without question you feel the heritage and you see the pictures of sinatra and you see the pictures of muhammad ali that fought there because that's where the big fights used to be uh evil knievel when evil knievel jumped over the that's over, right over the, you know you know, just all those pictures that you see when you walk through the corridors, they're like any other corporate, terrible corridors, you know, bad lighting. <laughs> but you have these incredible uh, pictures um, uh, of Muhammad Ali, the Rat Pack, Sinatra. Um, I was lucky enough to actually, I may have been one of the last people to ever sing for Muhammad Ali. I went to Ali's house. That's one of my so I went there with my dear friend Bernie Human and Larry Ruvo. And we got on Larry's jet and we flew and to Ali's house and I had breakfast and lunch with him at his house and he's it was uh, I've met I've met some incredible people because of because of singing you know it's taken me all over the world. <clears throat> when when you're going on at Caesar's Palace, did you, does it also feel like do you feel a responsibility as well? Do you feel like the show has to be big and or do you feel like it's any other gig and you just you just do your show? Well, to be honest with you, that's a, a broad, broad, it has to be a broad answer for me because my mum always used to say that I sing like I'm getting a million dollars a song. Uh, I don't think if you, if you do not undress your soul, then how do you expect the audience to, to believe you? And I think that you have to undress your soul in order to get to the truth of singing. Singing is a very, very, is meant to be a painful, joyful and, and joyful experience. It's meant yeah. to you meant to go to a place. You have to remember why you wrote certain lyrics, and you also have to connect to songs that you didn't write. That, and I think for me, obviously, you, I would, I definitely felt the presence of being also at the Mirage. You know, the Mirage, you know, Siegfried and Roy with just you know, unfortunately, we just lost Roy, 
Um, but any casino on the strip, you do have a sense of heritage. You know, they 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 actually awarded me with Matt Gostay August eighth, and uh, in Las Vegas, and um, they didn't know it was my mum's birthday, and uh, wow. so so it was, I went and they gave me key to the key to the strip, and um, it just in, incredible incredible things have happened here. So I owe a great deal to this town. Do you feel that like, because it's that you are a success by anyone's measure that you've done it in the UK and Bros? You go to America. I don't know were, were Bros big in the states or were you going there virtually yeah. as unknown? Uh, nobody had a clue I was in Vegas when I came here. Nobody had a clue. So you've gone to the states. So you've basically started from the bottom again, and you've built yourself up to be playing Caesar's Palace. Do you feel then that there's like you're talking about the NHS as being like the best of the UK? Do you feel like the press in the UK are kind of like the worst part of it then? I'm at the, first of all, I just have to say I'm, I'm at the Mirage now, currently, but um, which is next door to Caesars. But um, <clears throat> I think that the press <clears throat> back then were nothing short of appalling. Nothing short of appalling. Um, but now I have to say my relationship with the press is completely different. I mean, my relationship with the press has been different with than, than my brothers, I think, in some ways, because I have continuously come back. I have played you know, many nights at the Royal Albert Hall and, and even more at the Palladium or, and Wembley. I got best show of 2016 as a solo artist at Wembley. Um, mm. So I still, you know, when I get that award downstairs from, Wem from Wembley Arena to think about all the bands that played that year at Wembley, I won the best show of the year. And um, it, to me, it, it, it's, it's going to sound corny, but I have a thing. So you have to, it's just left foot, right foot when you go through life, you have to put left foot in front of the right foot. Sometimes it feels really difficult, but you have to remember to dance along the way. You have to dance along the way because there are days where you, you just go, I don't really want to do this anymore. And it's a really strange feeling because after 32 years, there are days where the only thing that gets you on stage is that audience. And yeah. the, you know, and I don't matter. It doesn't matter what field you're in with you, with what you guys do what we're going through now it's a lot of output you understand this there's a lot of output output and sometimes certainly with what you guys do you don't very you don't even get a live audience in front of you so there must there is people do not understand sometimes there's a lot of output to entertainment quote unquote so um here's a, here's a question so you've got a residency in las vegas and i think right. like aerosmith had a residency in las vegas and yep. um uh people uh, uh, you've got seek freedom roy are you sort of like is there sort of like a um a circuit of performers in las vegas that have got residencies and then you all go to a bar afterwards and go and compare notes on how your shows went <laughs> I think that there's, unfortunately, I would, uh, first of all, there are places that entertainers go to. Um, and I'll just give a little shout out to Naked Fish Sushi, which is a little hole in the wall <laughs> sushi place, which is way off the strip. But I think the truth be told is that when you do your show, you, you, I mean, I live off of the strip about 17 minutes to be exact, because I literally drive to the show. I get out of my car, the valet, shake the hands, have a good show, Matt. Cheers. Walk in. We do a hands-in family. I go on stage, do my show, meet and greet, tons of hugs, selfies, stories, get back in my car. And I use that 17-minute drive home to 
depressurize and sometimes I'll go to my sushi spot and there'll be other entertainers there and stuff like that but we we tend to um not talk about our shows we tend not sure. to talk about <laughs> we tend not to talk about it's almost like oh, you also don't want to have music on in the car after the show right you, yeah. you need that silence you need the solitude a little bit but yeah there's some brilliant brilliant people here very profound people in vegas you know you have i've had all kinds of people come jason statham come to my show sharon stone um you know unbelievable dick clark incredible people have come to the show you know extraordinary right even I mean, ricky hatton got, ricky hatton got up and sang or tried to sing it was a good laugh we've had such a the one thing about vegas is is that whatever you think you know about the music industry burn it burn it and then burn it again it has nothing to do with the music industry because you are performing to people that may have read a review and they're like oh bird you know and then they're sitting there like entertain me i want to see if, if the review is true and then obviously half the room two-thirds of the room knows you but one third of that room may absolutely have no idea who you are yeah. every night yeah well me and me and that are stand-up comedians and um i i used to get people coming in to see me based on reviews and they would always walk out <laughs> they'd well, hate me but, but, but you know what I mean then it's like people do literally they'll base their night out on a, on a trip advisor review and yeah, yeah. certain tourists and it's and to you you're you know you're joking aside you as a comedian you're you are putting material together based on what, what's deep within you and like and your sensibility as a comedian it's like mm. you know there is there's an art to that that's something that I have so much respect for that's a very difficult thing yeah but you think oh, well the same thing you were saying about like yeah, if people are looking like going to see a base in a review or something they're not they, they'll go oh that's got but it's usually just stars as well they've gone that's got four or five stars i'll go and see that one but it doesn't have anything to do with whether they'll enjoy it <laughs> yeah i know i know it's, it's funny so I'll, I'll go to the four fun i'll go to the four star funny guy yeah <laughs> yeah and it's yeah but it's, it's, it's sort of like um I always think of it. I, I did a I did a gig ten years ago called uh, Big Value Comedy, and people would pay like five quid, and they'd go and see three comedians. And you go, yeah, but what sort of comedy is it? And that's like going to sort of like, <laughs> hey, I'm, yeah, I'm going to a music night, and then you go to the music night, and it's jazz, and you go, oh, I don't like jazz, and it's just like, well, no one said yeah, it was yeah, going to be your sort of music. But it's, it's it's even more it's even more obscure to say what kind of comedy it's like well it's it's really unfunny comedy you should check it out you know <laughs> yeah that's what i do <laughs> we're trying a new, a new style of comedy that it's, it's actually mime everything's mime <laughs> i mean there is that 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 does that does exist it does oh, it sounds pretty, pretty, yeah well that's the kind of thing i would go to the two-star review just for, for shits and giggles <laughs> Well, that's my show then. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, do you find uh, being in Las Vegas? I, I know when I went, I think I only stayed for like probably overnight. So it's like 12 hours. But definitely at the moment, because we're all in lockdown, it's just really difficult to sort of um, place what time of day it is. And oh, yeah. I just find that in Las Vegas, especially when you're in all the casinos, they sort of like, they, they like, they plan them so that it, you never know what time of day it is. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? Yeah, they, the, the lighting inside the, the casino with the lighted ceilings and the clouds, and the, it's all yeah. based on... But I think, you know, I wrote a song called Lovely Las Vegas, which, which I, I actually... <laughs> amazing story about 
I can't actually won't go into the story, but anyway, I wrote this song. <laughs> Great. You're a wonderful guest. <laughs> I, I, thank you. Thank you very much. Good night. Um, <laughs> I, I think there is a lot more about this town that people don't know. And after having a show for over a decade, you know, the restaurants, the entertainment, um, the countryside around here, like if you come here, you've got to go to Red Rock Canyon and you've got to, you know, you've got to, rent a convertible and drive around the, the the red rock canyon loop and it's just god's country it's like unbelievable the vistas and just the it's an incredible town it's it's a much more diverse town than people think um and you know i do think that this town we do have to be very careful we we are dependent upon by definition we are dependent upon crowds and not only crowds crowds from all over the world so 40 million people come through here so we we want to get it right and that's why i'm glad the governor's being is, is being strong and he's holding his ground and but because this town is a remarkable place um and i'm proud to have been part of this town for a long time and um i just i really want you know i do want people to give it a bit of a, a thought for and the entertainers and the, uh, the comedians and the, the any performing arts, we are purely de solely dependent upon on on crowds and to do what we do. And, the, and yeah, there are live, there are virtual concerts and all that stuff. And that's and I think it's very innovative and exciting. But it does not pay the bills for the average entertainer. It doesn't. And uh, we will be on our knees if the, if there if the, if there are not intelligent stimulus packages and stuff like that put in place by governments. And I mean real soon because, you know, the p payrolls and stuff like that are like devastating and um, financially. So I think that, you know, not to, to bring it down, but I do think it's important to try and urge governments to also just not think that entertainers or famous people or DJs or have a rainbow with a magic pot of gold at the end of it. It's, it's, that's the perception. It's not the, it's not the reality. Exactly. I think the biggest thing now as well that everyone's in lockdown, what people are consuming now is entertainment that has been made for them. So that's, yeah. how get, that's how they get through the day. And they've almost got to think about all this, all this stuff was provided by people. That's all like yeah. the drama that's been made before, or it's, um, you know, like songs that are listening to or films that have been made. That's what's getting built through the day. And I think people do have to think about that afterwards, that this is currently, it's creative people that are getting everyone through the lockdown. As always, as they always do. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think there's also there's also a little bit of somewhat a sense of shame to, to say that, you know, to think that you want to earn money or you want. But the reality is that's, you know, I would like to take that veil off, you know, and just be like, that's not the way it is. And I think that, you know, there is a tremendous amount of output um, that goes into that. And, you know, I just, you know, I just really want to make sure that artists and and entertainers and anyone in performing arts are taken care of because i mean everything is shut down i mean our industry will probably end up being the last one to open i would imagine yeah yeah i think that's it yeah. well we're, we're being told that comedy clubs aren't going to open until next year now and it's kind of like well you know aside from doing bits of telly that is our income you know, I've, yeah. I've, I'm meant to be I'm meant to be on tour at the moment, and we've done, we've actually delayed it. But because everyone's tours have been delayed, there's sort of like a backlog. So my tour has been delayed by an entire year. So it's kind of like obviously I make money off of the tour, but I've got to wait a year before I can actually start uh, making that money. So it's all um, yeah. But that's fucked, the thing. Like, who do you know? 
who do you know that like there are very very few people that can actually just go oh just wait this out for a year yeah it's uh that's what that's what that's where i'm where i'm at i'm like okay right now we're doing this it's amazing when you know listen i'm i like boris and i think he's a he's a he's actually you know i think there's elements from that i like certain elements that i like but when you when i hear things like stay alert and i'm just like for what you know you know I, last time i checked it was invisible but it was it was uh it was <laughs> it was um stay alert it sounds very churchillian doesn't it it's like very uh stay alert and be and we're like all right do you can you give us the magic corona goggles so we can actually see what we're staying alert for please and it's uh i think that, that to your point it's like we can stay alert but we've also got there's there's millions and millions of people that are self-employed people that are not going to be able to go to have any work you know i'm self-employed everybody i know is self-employed it's it's mm. definitely going to be a scary time if it does as you say i think you're right for another year mm. I mean, I'm, and it's not just, but also on top of that, it's not just, oh, we're allowed to do gigs again. It's whether people even want to come to gigs, you, yeah, right. you know. Or whether I even want to be in front of, whether I feel safe enough to be in front of a bunch of people as well. It's, it's this, you know, this circle of eight, you know, it's a figure of eight. It's, it's this, you know, mutual respect, but also... Hey, are we all good here? Like, there's such a lack of information. Hmm. Exactly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Boris, and I feel that that is part of it. That we just don't have like the correct information. The information changes, not necessarily based on like new information. It's changing because of what they can do, and that's why I think at the minute it's like reacting to to things that they're not doing. Yeah, well, I, I, when I say I'm a fan, I, I like, I like straight shooters, and I, and I'm a huge fan of Churchill, and I, I really am. I'm like obsessed. I, I've just written a, uh, me and Stephen Enderman just wrote uh, the musical for Upstairs Downstairs. So yeah, we saw um, that. Yeah, so so I'm we've inserted him into the story, but I. I like straight shooters and I like that sense, that, that sense of stoic, you know, British pride. But ironically, I think he's now, it's divided us, uh, you know, Scotland's on lockdown and we're not. I'm like, which I I just, unfortunately, I think it's divided us even more. Hmm. And I think the intention was good. And I think the intention is good to, to tell people to stay alert, but the working man has still got to go out there on the front lines and quote unquote, keep the country going at his own peril. And it's, it's, uh, we need more information. I do think it comes down to intelligence stimulus packages for people to actually be able to construct their lives. You know, the lenders, the banks, they should, all mortgages should be on hold if we're being asked to stay at home. All, all tenants and rent payments should be, should be frozen. If they're saying stay at home, then they should have to, they should make stimulus packages that allow us to stay at home without the fear of coming out of this you know, and try and play and catch up for the last year. That's not the way economy's going to bounce back. The banks and the lenders have to dig in with communities. They really do. And I don't know how you guys feel about that. But I think the same, because it's like if, if they were in trouble, it would be up to us to bail them out, which has happened before, happened 10 years ago. It was, it was up to the taxpayers and things to then bail out the banks. So it's now the shoe's on the other foot. So it's now for them to, yeah. to help us out. Yeah, I mean, if somebody, I spoke to a builder the other day in one of my lives, and please, if you check it, if you can, come onto my live Instagrams at 9 p.m. because we have very diverse conversations. And, and there was a builder, he was a 65-year-old builder, and he was like, Matt, he, says, he said, 
I just don't know what I'm going to do. He says, you know, it's just me, myself and I. And he said, I subcontract plumbers. I subcontract drywall, drywall guys. He said, I'm a builder. And he said, I, sub, I subcontract everybody. And so we gave a shout out to his company and said, please use small businesses. If you need anything done during these times, use the small, the small guys because they are literally paycheck to paycheck. And it's, it's heartbreaking to me. And it amazes me that that government thinks that the general public, I, I, I think I read one quarter of the British public don't have any savings. So what's happened? What's going to happen? It's like, it's, it's very robotic and it's, it's, it's not very soulful. It doesn't have, it doesn't take into account that people are literally building the anxiety building right now at the thought of coming out of this because all the, all the switches are going to get put back on. And uh, that, that's quite a frightening thing for, for a lot of people and I worry about that and I think that if the powers that be could say you know to the lenders and to the banks everything is frozen until we're out of this there's not everything so the, basically the the landlords don't have to worry because their mortgages are on hold and the tenants don't have to worry I think things that that would be a start to allow people to stop worrying about the immediacy of a roof over their head I think that is the most obvious thing to me um, mm. but Anyway, so if I'm getting it, if it's not very funny, but it's uh, it's how I feel. No, it's, it's, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. But you're talking then about the, this, you, you writing an upstairs, downstairs musical. So is that something you were a fan of then in the 70s, the TV show? Well, I, I think I was a fan. I've always wanted to do something that allowed me to be the creator of something that I could also sit back and watch. Um, and my friend, Stephen Edelman, it, the, the, he'll tell you the same story. He used to call me, like he started calling me about, you know, what do you think about this song? And, and what, do, and, and it was like, I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. And I was like, maybe it's a bit rigid and, you know, and if, if it wanted to appeal to a, a new audience and he called me on the, about the, about the 10th call. I'm like, don't fucking call me anymore because you're, I'm contributing. And unless you're going to offer me a job, I love you. You're my buddy. I said, but don't call me anymore. And um, about this, and then he, he called me the next day. He said, "Were you serious about possibly contributing, like being involved in this?" I said, "Yeah, of course." Um, he said, he, "So he fired his the whole Broadway team, and we got together and we agreed. We did the, the contracts and all that stuff, and that, and we incorporated ourselves, and we set forth on a journey for two years every day on Skype calls, and we wrote this." We've written this and in person at times, but we wrote the most beautiful musical. We wrote 44 songs. Uh, we're currently getting the book finished. We have um, an incredible Broadway um, producer uh, who's had m massive hits there. And I can't say who yet, but it's, we're, I'm very, very proud of it. It's probably on a, on a cerebral level, it's probably the most challenging thing I've done because it's all set in, between, in, in 1914. So we let a lot of the history do all the heavy lifting for us in regards to the story. But we have inserted characters, one of them being Churchill. Okay. Uh, so all the, you know, all the characters like Mrs. Bridges, Hudson, you know, Lord Bellamy, all those characters obviously still in there. So is that a, a property that's known in the States then? So if you're going to try yeah. and... Oh, so it's all well known. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's known globally, yeah. Wow. But also um, with sort of like successes like Downton Abbey and stuff, there's kind of like that British kind of... Uh, aristocracy that sort of that sort of like way of life yeah, is class, kind of yeah. like there's a class distinction upstairs downstairs was de definitely about the upstairs and downstairs you know the, the service <laughs> yeah. the, the service the service obviously the service industry being uh downstairs which was very and then and obviously the uh the wealthy 
and it was a, it was a were... great. There's a song called "Underneath the Watchface" uh, that we wrote. That was the workings, you know, the serene tabletop of the dinner party, which is the watchface, and underneath the watchface was all the the, the the service and the you know the care of the house. And back then, it was a real privilege to be in the service industry, in in a, in a, in, a, in an affluent house and eating eating place. So it was it was genuinely a, a you know you. You think I was joking when I said upstairs, downstairs, but it literally was that simple. Mm. Yeah. So, like, if you think of yourself then now, and you're in you're in Las Vegas um, a couple of years ago, what was the thing that you're sort of at the top of your game, and your brother then was in movies and things? So both of you are really successful. What was the thing that made you want to do Bros again? <clears throat> um, I think that it was just. I think it was really bad decision not to do it sooner i think it but i think that both people both myself and my brother are super individual people and he was just not ready and then i was not ready and then it was just it was it was a given sorry what are you gonna say what's that just that really comes through in the documentary you know um was that when uh back back in the day when you were being marketed, you were marketed as identical twins. You were so striking. You had the same hair. You know, there's album covers of you looking identical to each other. And it's kind of like you're being marketed as like this package. And then when this documentary came out, it's just kind of like you've got these two such like polar opposite personalities, you know. Yeah. And it's sort of like, from coming from a point of view where you you when you were in Brosh, you were marketed as kind of like identical twins. And then when you see the documentary, you see how different you are. I just thought it was just really interesting. Well, first, thank you. Thank you. I'm really proud of that film. We won the BAFTA and we national film award. We won moment of the year, BBC. It, it did so well. And we had, a, we had a screening in Hollywood, an industry screening. I don't need to tell you guys what industry screenings are like, but they were, it was full of people that, you know, just, you know, waiting to be impressed or very much unimpressed they didn't really carry the mm -hmm. way but we had the screening and afterwards we had just a sand ovation it was an incredible reaction and we were like wow i hope that the british public this connects in the same way in some ways because although it was funny in places and it was poignant and you know we we hadn't addressed certain things like the passing of my of our mother when my mother died i think that we both cracked on i was on good morning america three days after my mum died and because we just had to dig in and I was back on stage at Caesars within seven days and my brother was doing films and we just didn't want to acknowledge that our best friend, you got to understand the way we were brought up. We, we really didn't have much. We, the, the one thing we had for sure is our mother's love. And we were a real, we were the, the musketeers, me and our, my mother and my brother. And there was a, there was a story. Do you, do you have a quick to, have a moment to tell you guys a story about when we were younger? Yeah, go for it. And, um, we, 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 my mother showed me her purse and she said, we haven't got any money left, son. We, we, we've got two pence. It was two pence in her purse. So at the time that was enough to make a phone call to our grandfather, my mum's father, and the most, probably one of the most influential men in my life outside my father as well. But it, he was, um, she was just leaning over the phone box and it was pouring down with rain and we were just shivering and scared and didn't know what was happening. We looked down and uh, we, there was five quid on the, on the floor 
and I remember just didn't quite know what the value was, but we knew that it would help. It was certainly more than what she just showed us in her purse. And we knocked on the on the window of the of the and my mum at that point was just sobbing into into the phone. And she went, Wait. And she shared us first time. She never shared us. And we was and we just took a gamble. Yeah, you know, a minute later we knocked again, just holding up this five quid. And she she went, Dad, I gotta go. And she put the phone down and we ran home in the rain and we put this five pound note over over our boiler. And this this as we waited for it to dry, um, it went like that, and it was two five pound notes, and um, and it, <laughs> and that got us, I don't know, and my mum did it, but that that got us through to a point where my mum got another job in it. You know, she was a hairdresser, and and uh, that was that kind of with many 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 of those memories, but just that was that kind of memory that was that created a bond that you may get to understand why me and my brother sent such felt such a sense of loss when she died i know many many people i speak to lose their mother and a lot of fellas i was at a restaurant in london and a fella just put his head on my shoulder and, and wept in the middle of a restaurant and i'm very very lucky that people seem like they can come up to me but after that film i can tell you the main demographic demographic of that film was 18 to 35 year old men and it's because i i felt what i felt from it personally is that how much we just suppress our feelings man and we're not meant to be honest and we're not meant to feel pain. And that movie was having therapy in front of a nation and in front of the world. Every single airplane in the world played that film. You know, it was like, it was, we, we, we addressed, sorry for the long winded answer, but we addressed questions that we had suppressed so deep within our souls. We didn't think we would ever, certainly about the band, certainly about the way Luke felt about me being the front man. <clears throat> it was, it, you know, and obviously about our mother's grief and our, the loss of our sister who was killed by a drunk driver. We hadn't really spoken about these things um, because we just cracked on with cracked on with making a living, building a career, and trying to numb numb ourselves to our pain and our grief. Hmm. And that's the truth, and that's what that movie was. It wasn't bullshit. I mean, we were in deep pain during that film, and believe it or not, during those things called the master interviews at the end, when I'm looking down the barrel. Luke's looking down the barrel. That's called the master interview. That was a five-hour interview. It breaks you down. And uh, we were trying terribly not to get emotional during those interviews purposely because we didn't want to be seen to be weak. Or, but you could see the containment of, of pain, which is, I think is even more painful. I think that's the... Because the image you had of Bross in the 80s and 90s was this kind of... You were both... To you had the blonde hair, and your image was kind of icy, and it was kind of steely, and that was the kind of you never really got a sense of you two as personalities or what you were like individually. You just yeah. had the image, right? It was all about the image of these two identical kind of steely-looking icy figures. Whereas mm -hmm. I think what the documentary does as well, it kind of opens the door a bit, and that's actually what you want from musicians and artists. You want them to know what they're like in reality you don't want to have an image of someone what 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 audiences love i think is really to identify with the people on screen or the people singing and uh, but I, it almost seems crazy in hindsight that the image yeah. in the 80s and 90s it was this steely kind of like there was a, it was like there was a wall in front of the audience well there was there was a wall i mean that's what i said before there was a wall there was no it was called media 
the media, you, the only way, you would literally have to wait for the next big publication to print. So you, you, you have to imagine without social media, you would correct, all you would want to do was correct the last interview and then correct the next interview and then correct. It was an, it was a, it was an endless cycle of self-defense. It was martial arts, mate. It was absolute martial arts. And now, thankfully, I've, I've come through that. And I think, I truly think success is longevity. I think, listen, I can have a number one record now. It might mean something on top of all the other stuff I've done. But if you just, you know, would I rather have a number one or, or know that I've got a place in the industry until I drop? I'd rather just know I've got a place in the industry until I drop because I think most seasoned entertainers, and I hope you, I'm sure you guys can relate. It's just about doing what we do. It's not about chart positions or getting attached to those things. That's, you know? I think that's the goal. That, that's, that's, that's my goal is to just keep working and doing what I love doing for the rest of my life, you know, and you get to, you get to, you get to the end of that. And if you can maintain doing what you love and what you're passionate about for that amount of time, that's the success. It's not about being, um, well, for you, it's not about like being on top of the pops. It's not about being kind of like uh, number one and being harassed by the um, the by the media. But it's about the fact that you've been doing this for thirty years, and you know, over thirty years, and and, and you've got a residency in Las Vegas, and you just you know, you had this film that came out, and you know, you're doing incredible. Thank you, mate. I mean, I'm proud because we do. Me and my brother try, and but if we do something, we always tend to create something if you think about it when we do come together something happens we've always managed to create something cultural and whether whether you've seen it or not after the screaming stops is a cultural film you know and to get gq so it's the greatest music documentary of all time not i don't personally think that but i do i do think that that to receive that kind of accolade from a, from a publication like that is isn't that it it doesn't make me feel validated as an artist but it is a relief that somebody sees the work that went into it by full well films and um, you know me and my brother you know we had to we had to go and play we sold two nights out in seven seconds at the o2 before the film was made so all of these things had to happen before that movie could even be made um sure. and one of the things i wanted to just touch on in, in regards to respect out of respect for you guys is that that you know, I want to give a shout out to you guys as artists because I know a few comedians and stand-up comedians, and it's an incredibly cerebral process, and not being able to actually go out and release this artistry, which it is, which also sometimes gets overlooked. You know, stand-up comedians. There's a real deep cerebral connection to their humour because humour, with humour, you must be intelligent to even put those words together to somehow to get to 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 the laugh. And so, my my thoughts are with you guys as well for not being out to go out there and and let this out because artists, by definition, are thinkers. So I hope that you guys are fair enough, okay, as well. Oh. That's lovely. That's, that's lovely. <laughs> but I think he was mainly aiming it at me, Nathaniel. Right. So. Um, uh, yeah, enough about me. What about me? <laughs> but what about? Um, okay. So, so the, I mean, obviously, the the documentary is really moving, and uh, but it's also really funny, and it's really yeah. entertaining. It's a really great. It's a really great film, and it's not just the fact that it is a good documentary, and it's not just the fact that it's it's kind of. Um, uh, it got like good reviews and it got good coverage. It was the fact that it, I mean I I can't I think that it was released and then it came out on iPlayer. 
Yeah. And it came on it came on an iPlayer over Christmas. And I think that a lot of people missed it when it first came out. And then when we were all at home at Christmas, it became this thing which was just everyone was... It was like a cultural touch. Yeah, we touched it. I was just America. Like, I, one day yeah, I remember it, every day. I remember like there was like thousands of tweets about... And I'm like, what's... what's but my first initial reaction was, oh, my God, what's wrong? You know? Yeah. And then... But I, uh, you know, I just... I think that it was just... Uh, it, was, it was something that was an incredibly... It was incredible to experience what that what that film did and and i but i do feel like uh me and my brother have become a lot closer before it you know we have yeah that's incredible that's That's incredible that's like all these things is like 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 i was saying before about knowing who you and your brother are more as individuals now than we ever did 30 years ago but it's also the the documentary like all documentaries a story isn't it it's like a a proper narrative and you've sort of invested in so it is that thing where, like, it's just storytelling, and that's what people love, and that's what people kind of invest in it when they see it, I think. I, I think, thank you. And I think also things like the Stevie Wonder thing. I want to actually say to you guys, about, I made a conscious decision to not be superstitious because of Stevie Wonder, that, that line that <laughs> thought that was so funny. I want to explain, I, I, I am so still in tune with exactly that, sense, that, that sentiment because what happens is that is the example of a soundbite. Although I'm glad it stayed in the film that way, the reality is, is we had absolutely fuck all growing up. And our literature growing up, some people will not even know what I'm talking about, were the liner notes of albums. So when I was growing up, what I would read would be the, would be the lyrics, where, where it was made, who recorded it, the musicians on the album. And sure. when, you're, when you're coming from nothing, superstition, certainly in my family, crippled us. We were crippled by it. Like, you know, don't do this. Oh my God, don't do this. It was all fear-based philosophy, you know, which is superstition is fear-based. And I remember thinking the song was about that, thinking, oh, good, it's good to be, because if you believe in things that you don't understand, then you'll suffer. Um, I remember thinking, oh, fuck that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to walk under every ladder I can. And and it was, it really was, if you listen to the narrative, either side of that, that statement, I still stand by it and I encourage people to live, not to live in a fearful place because I think fear cripples us. It certainly cripples me. And there is, whenever I fear fearful, I don't perform as well. Whenever I'm fearful, I don't, I don't feel as lucky. And I, you know, I, my life doesn't seem to go quite as well. How do you mean, how do you mean fear? What are you, what are you, what do you mean? Like, you're, what are you scared of? Some people won't walk under a ladder. It's like, why? What's going to happen? And that's where the superstition thing came in. It was like, I, I mean fear as in, in all senses of the word. I think, you know, with self, even self-isolation, we, we, you make movies in your mind, you make movies in your head, you, you play out scenarios, you, I, I, you know, faith. You know, I questioned my faith after my mum died. You know, I think, me personally, I have a great deal of faith, but I do believe that religion is the nosy part of faith. Where I disconnect from religion and attach myself to the word faith is because i'm not really interested in any in the details of religion i'm more interested in this in the soul of faith and the, and that can be very individual my, my manager's an atheist but he still has soul you know i'm not really interested in the details i think it's one of the few things left that we have that are so remarkably individual and beautifully individual and it's got me through a lot my belief system is that i don't you know i don't want to know the answers to 
to, to those questions. I just have a certain feeling. And that's the telephone line to my family, to my mother, to my sister, to my grandfather, to my nana, to my bodyguard, Johnny, you know, to the people I've lost, you know, many people I've lost. And um, so that's what I mean. It's like, you know, try and operate from a place with less fear. Fear is good in some ways. And in fact, it energizes you, it can energize you. But I do think it stifles creativity and also dreams. When Sgt. Pepper came out, that was the first album that put um, Lying the Notes on and had lyrics on it. Because it was that thing where it was that idea of the Beatles saying, this is where the lyrics are important. And this is what, and, and having that album cover that was both the picture on the front and it had cutouts and it had the lyrics. So it was almost like the package of the album itself was important. So it was yeah. not just a piece of music. It was like an artifact. Yeah, well, you don't write, you don't write a book. You comedy you don't write lyrics you don't write if, if it's meant to just fall upon deaf ears then it might as well be vacuous it's not meant to be vacuous it's meant to fucking affect people it's meant to make you want to listen i've had some of my lyrics on the grave of, of somebody's father i mean where can you get a higher level of gratitude i mean it's 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 meant to affect you and i'm meant to be passionate it's great whenever i release any music i always make sure that all of my liner notes have got the punctuation in the right places so that you know so that people can read along you know i absolutely I completely understand you know i know that, that a lot of this stuff right now and the reason why i do my lives every day is because i am not a big fan really ironically of entertainment right now i'm, I'm a fan of conversation and i'm not a big fan of oh let's entertain like let's just see if it happens to entertain you know, because I think right now people just want to be spoken with, not spoken to, you know. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what this show is. I'm loving it. It's been my favourite interview of lockdown so far. Really, genuinely, you guys are phenomenal. I've, I can actually just see it. I feel like I'm carrying on. To be fair, we, we really didn't know what, what, to, what to expect. And I think I'd be more nervous about interviewing you than a lot of our other guests. But you're, you're lovely. Uh, thank you. As are you two, man. It's like really like I've just, um, as you can see, I was in my robe. I said to my manager, "Is this audio only?" It was like he says, "Yeah." I'm like, "Oh fuck it. I'm just going to press the video." I mean, <laughs> well, it's good. It probably means you're more relaxed, right? You're probably more likely to say stuff. I bedhead the, the the what I have left, but yeah. <laughs> mm. Um. So we've come to the end. So we've got. Uh, have you got time for a quick game? Hundred percent. This is okay. the, game, the game is called Better or Worse, where you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. On your opinion? Yeah, on my okay. opinion. You've just okay. got to guess what I'm going to say. Okay. So starting with Robert De Niro. Paul McCartney, better or worse than Robert De Niro, in my opinion? Uh, better. 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 George Clooney, better or worse than Paul McCartney? Worse. Worse. Worse, yeah. George Lucas, better or worse than George Clooney? Better. George Lucas, better. Better, yeah. Bruce Willis, better or worse than George Lucas? Worse. Uh, worse. Worse, yeah. High card. Bruce Lee, better or worse than Bruce Willis? Better. Oh, better. Better. Spike Lee, better or worse than Bruce Lee? Oh, well, Ooh, uh, that's tough. High card. I would say, say you would say, I would say better. I'm saying Spike Lee is worse than Bruce Lee. Both high cards, good cards. Michael J. Fox, better or worse than Spike Lee? Better. That's a feature cap for a lot. That's a tough one. Much respect, but I would say you still go with Spike Lee. I do I love Michael J. Fox? Elvis Presley, better or worse than 
Michael J. Fox. I'm going to say Elvis. Better. Come on, Elvis. Elvis, yeah. Tom Hanks, better or worse than Elvis? Ah, uh, I love better, Tom Hanks. Better. I'm say Elvis. Elvis. Elvis, still Elvis, of course. Tom Hanks is a high yeah. fan. Aretha Franklin, better or worse than Tom Hanks? Aretha Franklin, better. Of course, yeah. I think that's incredible. I think you've got like nine, yeah. right? I think that's like <laughs> you're one of the eight. You're one of the eight. eight scorers, Matt. I think I got... I think I got eight as well, actually. So I think we're, I think we're nine, even. Nine, nine, I, think, I think that you think you got ten, bro. To be honest with you. <laughs> um, so uh, your your single is out. You're raising money for the NHS, uh, and you can get it off. Uh, uh, there's a link on your Instagram. And uh, oh, uh, one one last thing. My friend Rebecca is an absolute massive fan of yours, and can you right. give her a shout out? Hello, Rebecca. I'm Matt Goss. I am sending you all the love in the world, and please listen to my record and make babies. Yes! <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. Much love to you both, and, and, and much respect to you. I've, I've, I've had the time in my life. Thanks for starting my day off like this, fellas. Oh, great, yeah. It's great. Great. Well done. Thanks for coming. Right, much love. All right. Thank See you. ya. Thank you very Bye much. Guys. Bye, guys. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio.